Psalm 140, and again, since it's not overly lengthy, let's just read our way through the psalm, and then we'll go back and look through it together. We find another psalm of David here, and we'll notice the next few psalms here as we wrap up our time. A lot of them are from David. This one says to us, Psalm 140, verse 1, David says, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purpose to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they rise not up again. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Psalm 140, we'll see, is basically a a plea of David here as he's praying to God for both protection and preservation we'll see from as he's mentioned repeatedly the reference to evil men or you notice the repetition he also refers to these evil men who were plotting and planning things multiple times he also refers to them as violent men and basically David here because of what he is dealing with and hopefully if you've had a bad day after reading that you feel your day's not as bad as perhaps David was dealing with some of the hardships and the difficulties that he's describing there. And David here is requesting that God would basically do two things, that he would stop the evil endeavors and things that were happening that were evil and hurtful, that were violent and were damaging, that God would stop those things and restrain evil, and at the same time that he would sustain the righteous, and that he would protect the cause of those who were innocent and vulnerable and who were doing what was right in God's sight. So he says here as he cries out to the Lord for help in the midst of this in verse 1, he begins by just simply saying, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. And there are indeed evil men. Not all men are doing what is good. There are always going to be the presence of evil men because there is an evil ruler who's directing the affairs of this world and those who are not submitted to God are going to be submitted to the only other option which is the evil one and so therefore they're going to be directed to do evil things and become evil men and they also notice become as well evil men become 
violent men, because David says in verse one there as well, Lord, preserve me also from violent men who plan, notice, evil things in their hearts, and they continually gather together for war. The idea is to attack and to wage war against David in some way personally and just against those who are doing what is good and righteous. And take notice, as David references here evil men in our passage, he describes evil men as those who do hurtful and harmful things. There's certainly no coincidence that David sort of interchangeably refers to evil men, then again in verse 1, violent men, and repeatedly through the psalm, he refers to these evil individuals who were plotting wrongdoing as violent individuals as well. And sadly, one of the characterizing marks of those who are evil is that they will do what is hurtful. They'll do what's harmful. That's what violent people do. Violent people hurt others. Violent people bring about harm against other people. And those who have evil intention because of the corruption of their hearts, they're going to plan things and they're going to endeavor to do certain practices that are ultimately going to result in hurtful experiences for other people. They're going to harm individuals and they'll even plan such things. He mentions there in verse two, those who actually plan evil things in their hearts. You know, it seems that we can't get more than a few-day stretch anymore. Can't even get a full week, it seems, nowadays before we see someone else who, whether it's a mass shooting or some terroristic endeavor or just individuals who didn't just spontaneously, just all of a sudden in a snap decision in the moment decide to do something evil or violent or murderous or destructive, but they actually plan intentionally in advance to go into some populated uh, area, to go into a store, to go into a crowd, to you know attack in the midst of a parade as we just saw over the holiday weekend, or to go into a school, and literally those who actually plan evil things in their hearts, that they actually have such a evil intention that they want to destroy lives for whatever reason, mainly just to obtain whatever their own objective is. And those who are evil in their hearts and who are hurtful, violent individuals are always willing to make that trade-off. They are willing to plan things and then to perform things that will basically destroy other people's lives just to obtain whatever their objective is. And of course, that can happen in a literal sense, and sadly, we see that. But we see individuals as well who are planning and doing evil things that are hurting people and harming individuals, and they don't even care. They have no sense of concern that they are ruining people's lives because all they can see in their self-will is obtaining their own objective. And because their heart is in an evil condition and they are therefore becoming violent and hurtful, they will do whatever's necessary to harm people, to even destroy lives just to obtain their own objective. And David was dealing with that very thing. He said, in fact, they continually are gathering together for war. And the idea there is the gathering together for wars is they're, they're just kind of coming together, planning their attack. They're always waging war. And David, no many, not many times, dealt with this type of thing, and he realized that he needed the Lord's help and deliverance. So here David is, is pleading with the Lord, Lord, deliver me from these people. Preserve me, Lord. Protect me from those who are planning evil things, who are waging war, 
And notice that one of the very clear ways that this came against David's life, now certainly David's life was in physical harm as well. We know that. We see that in the Old Testament. We've talked about that many a times as Saul has been attacking and persecuting David. When we've been doing our, our men's fellowship, we've been looking at the life of David for a good while now and have talked about how David's been on the run. And Saul literally, with murderous intention, was trying to literally assassinate David in a literal sense. So David no doubt understood that. But David also realized that one of the primary ways that evil men do violent, harmful things and attack in their warfare is through their words. Because you see what he says in verse 3 there? He says these violent, evil men who were attacking him, he said in warfare, they sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The idea is the, like the, the tongue of a serpent, like a snake. Picture the, the sharp tongue, the forked tongue coming out of the mouth of a serpent with its fangs, ready to bite, ready to strike. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent, and the poison of asps is under their lips. And the asp is basically a, uh, a very poisonous snake that if not treated upon the bite of one of these poisonous asps, it's said that literally within a matter of a few moments it can be fatal. So as David refers to the venomous bite of these snakes, and he uses this as an analogy, he says the words of these evil individuals, they're, they're words that basically are used like the sharp fangs of a serpent, they're always ready to strike, and they say things with their mouths to pierce individuals, and basically through their words they inject or they, they sort of interject poisonous and venomous things. And, and, you know, we've all, to some degree, probably experienced that in our lives. Maybe someone said some things about us, and what they said about us was just completely toxic, and, right? And it just poisoned the minds of other people, and, and they were just words that were just like a poisonous serpent. They said things about us that were completely toxic and poisoned the minds of people in their thoughts towards us about our character, or maybe it just completely poisoned our own life. Maybe they said things to us that were so hurtful and were so poisonous, it was like being bitten by a venomous snake. And it had great damage in our lives because of the very hurtful things that were conveyed. And, you know, the Bible speaks a great deal, and we'll see in the book of Proverbs as well, uh, of the references of how in the power of the tongue there's life and death. And how literally... You know, when we think about the reality that, that words can be, if you think about it, words can be incredibly helpful, words can be incredibly harmful, but all words ultimately are influential. One way or the other, right? Words can be incredibly helpful and words can be a great tool. They can promote health and life and healing. And at the same time, words can be incredibly harmful and hurtful and destructive, not just in one-on-one -on -one conversations, but it is through words, right, that, that people have swayed entire movements, have swayed nations, that, that, that led to things like the Holocaust. Where did that come from? Words. Just saying words and propaganda and promoting ideas and, and words are incredibly hurtful, powerful instruments, but whether they're helpful or they're harmful, words are always very powerful and they're very influential. It's just what we do with our words. And David speaks of those who are evil, that one of their 
key tools, one of their greatest weapons is using words in a hurtful, destructive way to poison situations, to poison people's minds, whether it's ours or other people's. And David says, Lord, preserve me from this. Please deliver me from these individuals who are doing such things. And he says, verse 4, keep me, O Lord, as well from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me, he says again, from violent men who have purpose. Notice David says, they've purposed to make my steps stumble. Verse 5, he says, the proud, the arrogant, they've hidden a snare for me and cords. The idea is like baiting a trap to catch an animal. They've spread a net by the wayside and they have set traps for me. So literally, David was dealing with individuals who were actually purposely trying to trip him up. They were trying to do things to ensnare David, to trap him, whether it was Saul and the many attempts that he made to bring down David, whether it was Absalom's rebellion when his son rebelled against him and there was the whole palace coup and he was trying to persuade everybody to get David off the throne and let him have his father's role and all the you know, intrigue that went along with that or all the many other occasions. David said, boy, Lord, there are times when people are, are literally trying to make me stumble. They're trying to trip me up. And, you know, there are going to be times in our lives where one of the ways the devil will work is not only through the hurtful words of an individual, but the devil will actually orchestrate situations and sadly even work through individuals to literally to bait us and to literally set traps and snares for us because the devil wants to stumble us. And he wants to get us entrapped in things, and he wants to ensnare us in things, to, to get us to sin, to get us to fall on our face, to get us to do something that's going to ruin our testimony or behave in a way that's just going to be destructive in our lives. And we have to continually be on guard and be asking the Lord's preservation of our lives. Lord, protect me. There are traps being set for me. There are those who are putting out snares around me, the evil one orchestrating his ways, using people to try and trip us up. And he says, verse six, I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord, please attend to my, to my prayer. He says, O God, the Lord, the strength, he says, of my salvation, you have covered my head, he says, in the day of battle. So David knew, notice there, David knew the strength that would assure his deliverance had nothing to do with him being able to overcome the schemes that were happening against him. It wasn't going to be David trying to outwit in his own smarts and his own skill that somehow he was going to avoid the traps or he was going to deliver himself out of his problems as he's dealing with the difficulties that he's describing here in this psalm. David knew the source and the strength to assure his deliverance out of these problems was not his own efforts, but it was going to be the power of God to intervene on his behalf. He says there in verse 7, Lord God, he says, you are the strength of my salvation, that is salvation of my deliverance. Lord, my deliverance out of trouble my deliverance out of the traps that are set in front of me to try and stumble me, my deliverance from people who are trying to hurt me and destroy me or say things to ruin me, Lord, my deliverance is completely dependent upon your strength. 
and your strength to be able to deliver me away from those who are trying to, to ruin me. And he recognized that what God did and God does was the source and the strength of his salvation and deliverance, because he even describes in verse 7 there, he says, Lord, it's because you have covered my head in the day of battle. Now, covering the head was crucial. They would wear weapons, certainly even in ancient warfare. They would wear armor in ancient warfare, and the helmet was critical. And the reason why the helmet was critical was because a head wound was typically pretty fatal. And so David here describes like the helmet being put on his head to protect and to guard his head from a mortal wound. And he says, Lord, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Lord, you are the one who has protected me from a mortal head wound, from a, from a fatal blow, the idea is. And, and I like the way David pictures God like putting the, 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 the spiritual armor over his head to protect his head. You know, of course, in the New Testament, the Bible speaks in Ephesians 6 about spiritual warfare and how we're to put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. And again, this spiritual armor that God gives to us so that we're not defeated and we're not destroyed by the spiritual attacks of the devil from the evil one because we deal with spiritual battles even as David was engaging in physical battles. And it's interesting that one of the things that is important for us to have is the helmet of salvation, to have something to protect our head because what's within our head? Our minds. And one of the primary places where the devil loves to attack in his battle efforts is to attack our minds, to attack our thoughts. And that's why it is so crucial to continually be looking to the Lord, Lord, please, would you cover my head? Would you protect my head? The idea is, Lord, protect my mind. Because many a times we all know that this is where the battleground is, right? The devil knows that he has no access if you're a born-again Christian. He has no more access to your soul. Ephesians 1 says that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And, and the devil is not going to break God's seal. So your spirit, your soul, the deepest part of you, the eternal part of your being, that is sealed by the Spirit of God, and the devil can't tamper with that. But what the devil does tend to do is it seems that his beachfront, the place where he launches his attacks to bring battle against us, is in the realm of the mind to continuously attack our minds with wrong ideas and deceptive thoughts and lies. Remember, Jesus said that he is the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks his native language. It's literally the native language of the devil to lie. And there are a lot of ways that he does that, to get us to believe a lie, to get us to have wrong thinking, to get us to have wrong views, to get us to have wrong perspectives, to, to get us to believe lies about ourselves, to think wrongly, to get us to, to believe lies about God, to, again, and, and to feel depressed or, or discouraged. And there are all these different ways the devil attacks our minds. And it's so important that we realize that we need God's protection over our heads. And here, David says, Lord, you're my deliverance and you alone, Lord. I need you to cover my head. He says, Lord, thank you that you have covered my head in the day of battle. And I think sometimes when we're going through battles spiritually, that's a great thing for us to recognize. Lord, please protect my head. Protect my mind, Lord, because that is where the enemy does tend to assault us so often and why we need to keep on that spiritual armor and have God's guarding and protecting over our head. And I love what David prays in verse 8 there. 
as he's expressing his deep concern that the evil men would not be advancing in what they're doing. Look what he says, verse 8, he prays, Lord, do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked, and do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. The idea exalted, when someone's exalted, they're, they're given authority or given power or given control if they're exalted. And so David says here in verse 8, God, please don't allow the desires of the wicked to succeed. Lord, they have wicked desires in their hearts, and you see those wicked desires. They are not in alignment with your will. They are ruinous. They are hurtful. They are destructive. So, Lord, please don't grant them their desires. Do whatever you have to do, God, he's saying, to, to hinder their plans, to stop their efforts. He says, Lord, please don't allow the desires and the schemes of the wicked to succeed lest they gain power to rule. Lord, please, I'm asking you, whatever you need to do, don't let them further their wicked schemes. And, you know, there are those, sadly, who have desires that are very wicked, and they have schemes that they are working that are completely wicked and sinful and wrong. And it is a very wise thing for us to pray as God's people, Lord, please, don't let wicked desires and wicked schemes succeed lest those wicked individuals who are not in accordance with your will be exalted to a place of control and power and be able to carry out their wicked desires and further their wicked schemes. Instead, Lord, stop them. Do whatever you have to do, God. Intervene, cut them down, frustrate their plans, ruin their efforts, whatever you need to do, Lord. Don't give them their desire, restrain them from it. Stop them before their scheme succeeds. And David was so serious about that, he prayed quite honestly, probably more honest than any of you have ever prayed, I'm sure. Look what he says, verse 9 through 11 here. He says, as for the head of those who surround me, he's talking about these wicked individuals, let the evil of their lips cover them. In other words, let the evil things they're saying, Lord, let it just come back on their own heads against them. May they be caught in their own evil words. Let burning coals, David says, fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire. Tell us how you feel, David. Into deep pits that they notice that they rise not up again, he says. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. And he says, let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. So David there prays very intensely. And don't you love the fact, again, as we've seen all through our study in the book of Psalms, and it's one of the things that certainly we generically love about the book of Psalms, is it makes us feel so very normal. Because we read the ranges of emotion and the passion and how David at times takes us from the depths of just utter depression and despair and Right, he's just totally despondent and he's at his wits end. And other times he's, he's angry as can be, like here in our passage. Other times he is just filled with joy and enthusiasm. And other times he's pleading and crying. And, and there's all these ranges of emotion. And, and it's like the Bible gives to us, not only this Hebrew hymnal, but in some ways it, it's like the Holy Spirit gives to us a glimpse into somebody's kind of prayer journal. It's like David's, you know, devotional journal, and God lets us kind of look into that, why David is just, 
in some ways, again, keep in mind, as David's writing these psalms, David's not writing these psalms and at the end of them putting a, a, a period at the end of it saying, boy, that's going to be a great psalm. They're going to love that in 2022. Man, they're going to take that thing there about, Lord, don't give the desires of the wicked and the wicked schemes, and they're going to say, that fits the current administration. I mean, D David wasn't thinking any of that. <laughs> David's just recording these things under the inspiration of the Spirit, and because the Spirit of God spoke these things, they become applicable to all of us down through the generations. But David was genuinely, I, I hope you can tell, he's just pouring out his heart. And, and we may read that and think, wow, I mean, that is David, I mean, oh, I can't believe you'd say such things. I mean, let fire come on their heads and be cast into the fire and let them fall into a pit and never rise up again. But what's David doing? He's just being honest, right? He's, he's not polishing up his communication before God. He realizes, like Psalm 139, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O God. In other words, David realizes, if I don't express this and get it off my chest and tell God how I honestly feel, because he knows how I feel anyway, then it's just going to make me go more crazy inside. So, so he just realizes, I got to just get my complaint out to God. And rather than tell other people about it, that's what we usually do, right? We just tell everybody else about it. We would write those kind of things or say those kind of things maybe in front of other people, which is unhealthy and unproductive. David just prays real honest. And I think God wants us to pray very honestly. It doesn't mean God's going to answer our prayers, doesn't mean God's going to say, all right, David, I had a fireball ready. Now you asked. doesn't mean God's going to answer our prayers, but God can process it, right? God can handle us talking to him honestly. And David is, in essence, just saying in these verses, Lord, may their own wrong ways become their downfall and their ruin. If I could summarize what David's saying in verse 9 through 11, that's basically what he's saying. Lord, may their own wrong ways become their downfall and their ruin. May it just come back around, and may they not rise up out of it again. Lord, let them fall into a pit, he says, and let evil hunt them down and overthrow them in what they're doing. And then he says, verse 12, concluding, and I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted. Again, the afflicted are those who are hurting, those who are dealing with suffering because they've been afflicted by hurtful things that have happened to others. And he says, Lord, you care about sustaining and maintaining those who have been afflicted, the victims, those who've been wounded, and justice for the poor, those who are vulnerable, those who are in need, those who are unable to help themselves. And all throughout the Word of God, we see how the Lord maintains the cause of the vulnerable, of those who are victims, those who have been hurt and abused, that God always stands on the side of those hurt and vulnerable, those who become innocent victims of evil doing. And he says, verse 13, surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name and the upright shall dwell in your presence. So David goes from, again, Lord, deliver me and just expressing the hurt and the angst of all the things that are happening to him to the end of the psalm, just ending the psalm. And again, notice in a short 13 verses, David's able to come out the backside of it. And now he's expressing faith and he's expressing hope and he's able to express thanksgiving. Why? Because David prayed. Because David processed it. Instead of David just stewing on it and being mad, because he processed it, 
be with, together with God, and he just got it out of his system and off of his chest, and he went out, and he just had a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with God. He's able to come to the end of the psalm, and, he, and he's able to say at the end of it in an attitude of faith, you know what, Lord? I know in the end you're going to maintain the cause of the afflicted, and you're going to stand and bring about what's just and right for those who are vulnerable and those who are being exploited. And he says, and Lord, I thank you that I know that in the end, the righteous win. That wicked men are going to do wicked things and there are going to be schemes and hurtful and harmful things that happen. But Lord, I thank you that in the end, the righteous are going to be in the right place. They're on the right side with you. We win in the end and God, we're going to be thanking your name and God, we're going to be dwelling in your presence. And the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, all evil doers and liars and people who do such things will have no access to the holy city of the New Jerusalem. So one day we will be in the presence of God and such individuals, sadly, will be separated from the presence of God. And David just put his anchor in that, and that's what helped him to keep going forward. Psalm 141 is another psalm of David. He says, Lord, I cry out to you, make haste to me and give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Now, when David says, Lord, I'm crying out with my voice, make haste to help me, uh, we might say in our common vernacular today, hurry up, God. <laughs> Lord, can you answer this prayer quickly? Lord, I don't got a lot of time here. Lord, I don't want to, I can't wait for a decision. I need you to act and I need you to make haste. In other words, God, please hurry up. I need a quick answer, a quick response. He's saying, Lord, please haste Hurry up, help me quickly, listen to my cry. Let my prayer, he says, be set before you as incense and the lifting up my hands as the evening sacrifice. So David's heart was that his prayer, notice, would be received by God like the incense that they would put on the altar as they would put the incense there and it would burn and the sweet fragrance of the incense would rise up. And the idea is that it was a, a pleasant fragrance and it was something that was pleasing to God. And so David's heart here is he's saying, Lord, as I'm praying, we're going to see he's pleading for God's help in this psalm, pleading for God's help before he ends up failing and entering into sin himself. Perhaps many believe it's connected to Psalm 140. The idea of Psalm 140, David describes all the temptation and the traps and the snares and the hurtful things. And it's almost as if in Psalm 141, a companion psalm, David's saying, Lord, please hurry up and help me because I'm going to get in the flesh if not. And I don't want to respond wrong and say wrong things and do wrong things. So, Lord, please hurry up. Help me. Help me before I do things wrong. And he says, Lord, I, I'm asking that my prayer for your help, he says, would be received by you like the pleasing offering of the fragrant incense, he says, that's offered on a daily basis as I lift my hands up even as they do in the evening sacrifice. The evening sacrifice was a, a daily offering unto the Lord. And so David wanting, notice verse 2, he wants his prayer to be like a pleasing offering to God. And that's a really great way to think about our prayers. Lord, I, my heart is, is that my prayer to you would be something that brings pleasure to you. That it would be like a pleasing offering, like the sweet incense that would rise up from the altar of incense there as I lift my hands in dependency to you. Lord, I pray that it would please you that I'm asking these things. I pray that it would please you what I'm praying, what I'm asking for, 
And look what David asks. What a great thing. Verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Now, boy, that's a very fitting companion prayer to what he just described in Psalm 140, right? Because in Psalm 140, he talked about, Lord, these evil, violent men, they're using their tongues like a poisonous serpent, like a sharp sword, and they're saying hurtful things, and they're destroying me with their mouths. And what is the natural human response for me? I know not for you because you're more spiritual. What's the natural human response when poisonous, toxic things are being said about you or toward you? It is right. We want to open our mouths and we want to engage in battle. And we want to say things back in response or we want to communicate hurtful. And, and here David says, Lord, as this poisonous talk is going on, as this unhealthy conversation is happening, he says, Lord, whatever it is, please, 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 Lord, restrain me from saying things that I shouldn't say. He says, verse 3 here, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. What an interesting picture, our mouths, the place where we communicate from, picturing it like a door, right? Doors do two things. They allow things in, but they also allow things to go out. And it's probably much less dangerous what goes in our mouths, because that's just called digestion and goes into our bodies, What's way more dangerous is what's coming out of the door of our mouth. That's what tends to be a lot more dangerous and a lot more concerning. And so we should be honestly quite a bit more concerned about what's going out of our mouths than we are what's going into our mouths. Many of us are way more focused on what's going into our mouths, <laughs> and we should be way more focused on what's going out of our mouths. And so David says, Lord, please, would you set up a guard, a garrison, over the door of my mouth. Lord, I don't want to say things that I shouldn't be saying. Lord, I don't want hurtful things to come out of my mouth. Lord, I don't want to end up saying things that are just end up becoming fuel to a fire or become more gossip or more backbiting. And, and Lord, so please help me to learn to have restraint over my mouth. And boy, that is a tough thing, is it not? And the book of James gives almost a whole chapter to that reality. James talks about the struggle with taming our tongues and how no man can tame the tongue and how the tongue is like just a little tiny rudder of a boat and can determine and change the whole direction of a boat, even in the strong seas with strong currents. And this little tiny rudder, you just move it a little bit and it can change the whole course and direction that the boat goes. And boy, with just a few words, we can change the whole course of where a conversation goes. We can send it down a really bad and wrong path by kind of just jumping in and interjecting our thoughts and saying things that just add fuel to a fire, or we can use our words in a healthy and a productive way. And so David says, Lord, please, I'm asking, and I pray that this prayer pleases you like sweet incense. Lord, would you guard what I say, keep a door over my mouth and, and watch what my lips will communicate. And boy, that's a great prayer, I think, just to continually pray ourselves in regards to what things we say and try not to say. Verse 4, he says, and don't incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity and don't let me eat their delicacies. The idea is don't let me indulge in the delicacies, the pleasant things that they're enjoying. 
And so David asks here, Lord, I ask you not only restrain me from wrong speech, but Lord, please don't let me, he says, verse four, don't let my heart begin to find enjoyment like indulging and eating the delicacies, the pastries, the, you know, all the, the royal pleasantries. Remember Daniel in his book, it says that he, he didn't want anything to do with the king's delicacies because he knew those things were defiled and wrong. And, and here David says, Lord, help me not to begin to find enjoyment like indulging in delicacies in doing things that are wrong. And if we were just to be very candid, our flesh enjoys doing what's wrong. That's why the Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season. We enjoy saying wrong things. We may regret it afterwards, but in the moment, we enjoy saying it (laughs) because we're corrupt inwardly, and we enjoy doing wrong things. And Sometimes our heart is inclined to behave in wrong ways, to practice wicked works with others who are doing such. And he says, Lord, don't incline my heart. Don't let me begin to eat and participate in the same enjoyment of sin and wrongdoing. Instead, verse 5, David prays, Lord, let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness, and let him rebuke me, he says, and it shall be as excellent oil, and let my head not refuse it. So David says, Lord, what I ask instead is when I'm beginning to err, If I'm starting to say something I shouldn't say or talk in a way I shouldn't talk, or Lord, if I'm starting to behave in a way that I shouldn't behave or go down a path I shouldn't go down, then he says, Lord, what I'm asking, would you let a righteous person in my life, a righteous man, a righteous woman, would you let them strike me? (laughs) The idea is, is strike me in a way whereby they're willing to kind of wake me up, slap me across the face, get my attention, if you would. He says, let them, there he says, let them rebuke me. That's the picture there, that they would confront me in my wrongdoing, that they would love me enough. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, we're going to see faithful are the wounds of a friend. That if somebody truly loves me, the righteous person, that they would be willing, again, let the righteous strike me. That's not going to be pleasant. That's going to be painful, right? But if somebody strikes you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rattle your cage, right? It's going to wake you up and get your attention. So he's saying, Lord, if I start doing wrong things, then please, would you let somebody righteous strike me for righteousness sake, the idea is, that they would rebuke me, that they would have enough courage to confront me in my error and challenge me when I'm doing what's wrong, and that they would speak into my life a rebuke, hey, what are you doing? Why are you heading down that path? Or why did you talk like that? Or, or, or what are you thinking like that for? And that they would challenge and confront us in our error. And he says, that would actually be a kindness to me. He's saying it would actually be kind for a person to do such because they care enough about our soul that they're willing to confront us to protect us from more problems. And he says, and it also shall be like excellent oil. Now, the idea of excellent oil in that day They many times, when you had a guest come into your home, would anoint you with a fragrant oil, and that was something that was a blessing because it made you, when you entered into someone's home, more pleasant to be around. Because in a day where they did not bathe as much, and they did not have Old Spice and all the deodorants that we use that basically just hide the stench that's there anyway in our armpit, we're just hiding it. It's a lot like religion, right? Religion just hides the stench. The blood of Jesus removes the filth from our life. Religion is kind of like deodorant. It just kind of, kind of hides it temporarily. 
And then it starts permeating back out again. And so they would anoint one another with fragrant oil as they would come into the house because it made you a lot more pleasant to be around. And so David says, not only would it be kind when people rebuke me, when the righteous rebuke me for wrongdoing, but he says, it would also be like a blessing because it will make me a more pleasant person to be around by somebody confronting me and challenging me. It will make me a more blessed person in the presence of others rather than a stench in their nostrils. And David says, Lord, please, all I ask is let my head not refuse it. In other words, David says, Lord, when somebody does rebuke me, help me not to be so arrogant that I don't receive it. Lord, when somebody does confront me or challenge me when I'm doing what's wrong, help me to be humble enough to receive it and not refuse it. And boy, that's a very important thing that we would always want to not refuse when we've been corrected, but we'd be open to a legitimate rebuke from a righteous individual out of love for our condition. He says, for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. The judges or their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff and they hear my words for they are sweet. And our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave. Now, understand David's using picturesque language here. When bones were scattered at the mouth of a grave, that was a disgrace. Because what was more disgraceful to a Jew than just being put to death by their enemy was being put to death by their enemy and not being buried in a dignified way. So for someone's bones to just be scattered, and one of the ways at times in the ancient culture they would disgrace people after they would kill them was they would leave their bodies strewn on the battlefields or they would, they would open up tombs of their ancient kings and they would strew their bones all over the place. And it was just a way to show complete disregard and to strip the dignity from people. So what David is describing here is, is being disgraced by the enemy and he says, when one plows and breaks up the earth, like a plow breaking up the ground, plowing over his back, the idea is plowing over his life and breaking up his life. But yet, think about it. Though David's describing being disgraced by his enemies and those who were against him and those, it was like they were plowing up his life. When you plow up and break up the soil, that actually ultimately is done for what? A productive purpose. When you plow and break up the soil, the purpose of that is to make that soil more productive. So even when things do happen in our lives, and they will from time to time, where basically we feel like things are transpiring in our lives, or maybe things have been done to us that have caused us to, to kind of have our life kind of plowed and broken up. And we feel like that we're broken maybe because the plow has been drug over our life by what's happening in our life or what's been done to our life. Understand Part of plowing and breaking up the ground is to make the soil prepared for something greater. It's to actually make us more productive, to make us more fruitful, to make our life more fertile for something to come out of it. And so if you feel like God's been allowing your life to kind of been plowed and broken up, then understand there is something good that God can bring out of that. I know it's not a pleasant experience, but God can bring great things out of a broken up life. Verse eight, he says, but my eyes, Lord, despite this, they're upon you, O God, the Lord. And in you, I take refuge or security. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they've laid for me, he says once again, and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. And again, he concludes verse 10, let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape 
safely. How about David's attitude? Lord, just you deal with them. Let them fall, let them fall into their own trap. And Lord, I trust you to help me escape and not get caught up in these things. And again, rather than David getting involved in the situation, he just again prays, Lord, I just pray that you would let them fall into their own traps, the things they're doing. Let them just ensnare themselves, and Lord, help me to escape out of this to safety as you lead me onward. Let's look at Psalm 142. We'll finish up with that one. It's another short one. David says in Psalm 142, and notice the beginning of the prescript. This was a prayer when he was in the cave. So we know that David was in caves in Adullam and in Gedi, somewhere between 1 Samuel 22 to around 1 Samuel 26. Multiple times, David's hiding out in caves. And what are caves? Dark places. They're cold. They're damp, right? A cave is not typically a pleasant dwelling. David was hiding in caves, and so sometimes we may feel like that we're, you know, in a cave, in a pit. Lord, I feel like this is a dark season. I feel like that it's just times are hard. I feel like I'm stuck in this dark, difficult, hard place, Lord. I'm in a cave. Well, this is what David's prayer was when he was in the cave from occasion to occasion. He says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. So notice David emphasizes here, he cries out to the Lord, and two times he says in verse 1, I cry out to the Lord, what, with my voice. In other words, what's he talking about? He's talking about praying out loud. And David said, in this hard time, in this dark season, when I was in a cave, he said, not only did I cry out to the Lord, but he said, I started talking out loud to the Lord. I cried out to the Lord with my voice, and I started actually using my voice to speak my prayers and communicate out loud to God. And let me just say, I think there's something really valuable at times about not just praying quietly, but actually with your voice articulating your prayers out loud. Especially if you're anything like me or like any human being like David, and you find that sometimes your mind wanders when you pray or you have trouble focusing when you pray, right? One of the great assets to help address that is pray out loud. And particularly if you're dealing with something serious, like a cave-like season in your life, maybe in order to keep your prayers really pointed and on track and not let your mind wander because of feelings and thoughts and everything that's going on in the dark season of life, that you would actually just articulate your prayers out loud. Just have an out loud conversation with God and talk to God and let your voice carry outwardly, vocalize your prayers. And many times you can keep your prayers in a a lot more focused and a pointed direction. And David says, Lord, with my voice, I make my supplication. Look what he says, verse 2. And I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. So notice, did David have troubles? Yes, he did. Did David at times have complaints within his soul? Yes, he did. And David said, what did I do with my complaint and my trouble he said, I just poured it out before the Lord. I just poured out my heart before the Lord. In other words, he says, I told the Lord about what was troubling me. And I told the Lord what my complaint was. I just poured out all of my complaints and I poured it out. But notice, David says, I poured out my complaints before him. A lot of times, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with telling other people our troubles and our complaints, but there's no better thing to do 
than to just get before God and to just pour out your complaint before the Lord and just tell the Lord, be honest with the Lord. You know, I read a book over the time that I just took off on, on vacation recently and read, doing a little bit of reading, a few books. I read one book I've had on my shelf for years. It was called Disappointment with God. And, and as I read, and the whole book was honestly probably about 250 or so pages, but the one phrase that stuck out to me in the book more than any other phrase was the author after writing, you know, all of this, it was a very, very good book. At the end of it, he said, I suppose the conclusion of the matter is this. He said, I suppose that disappointment with God is a better alternative than disappointment without God. And I thought, that's really good. <laughs> I suppose that disappointment with God, and if we were to be honest, at times we all may feel disappointed with God. Lord, why? But he says, I suppose that disappointment with God is a much better alternative than disappointment without God. Because life's filled with disappointment, right? Who doesn't have troubles? Who doesn't have complaints about what's going on in their lives from time to time? And he says, Lord, but I'm thankful I can pour out my complaint to you. I can just tell you about my complaint and my trouble. And he says, verse 3, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me. Thank you for your honesty, David. Sounds like he's pretty kind of at his wit's end there. My spirit was overwhelmed within me. But Lord, when that was happening, he says, you knew my path. You knew I was on that path where I was feeling overwhelmed within. And in the way in which I was walking, the Lord was aware of that path. And they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge, the idea is help, refuge, has failed me. And no one cares for my soul. Boy, David's in a lonely, difficult time. He's in the cave. He's dealing with hardship and troubles and difficulties. And David says, I look around and he says, no one acknowledges me. I, in other words, David's saying, I feel like everybody's just overlooked me. Nobody's aware of what I'm going through. Nobody acknowledges what's going on in my life. I feel like I'm lonely and suffering and abandoned, and I feel like I'm doing this all alone, and no one understands, and no one recognizes what I'm dealing with. And he's, he's saying, I feel like no one acknowledges me, and he says, refuge has failed me. In other words, nobody can help me. All help has failed me. Nobody is helping me in any way. Nothing is helping in any way. You know, isn't it interesting that in the New Testament, there's the situation where the woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years and that chronic suffering, it said that she had been treated by many doctors and spent all she had and just got worse. Isn't that a fitting pick? No one can help me. How we all know that from time to time. I have a very good friend of mine back from the church we pastored in New York, in fact, I was just talking to somebody on phone who's having some health issues in the church recently this past week, and I, I just shared with him, I said, this friend of mine who's brilliant, brilliant doctor, he's from a foreign country, um, and, and he said to me on one occasion years ago, he said, let me tell you something. He says, that's why we call it practicing medicine, because he says, that's what we're doing, practicing. <laughs> we're just practicing. And, 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 you know, just to realize that ultimately our trust can't even be in 
human beings, our trust has to be in the Lord. That's what drove that woman to Jesus, remember? As she went and touched the Lord, and she reached out to touch the hem of his garment. Lord, I have spent all I had, and I have spent all my efforts, and I'm not even getting better. I'm just getting worse. No, no help has come into my situation. Help has failed me. And then she says, he says, verse 4, David says, and nobody cares. No one cares for my soul. Boy, who has not ever felt like that in their life before? I feel like no one cares. I got to underline there on those three where no one cares. Sometimes we feel like that. No one cares, Lord. And so verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. In other words, Lord, you're my help. The only help that exists for me is you. You are my portion in the land of the living. Someone's portion was what sustained them. Your portion of food, your, your portion is that which is just enough to sustain you. And he says, Lord, you are my portion in the land of the living. Lord, nothing else can satisfy and sustain me, but you are my portion in this land of the living. So attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Lord, I confess my weakness, David says. I, they're stronger than me. Lord, I, I don't have the strength to overcome in this situation. I, uh, I says, I'm too weak. Verse 7, he concludes, bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me for you shall deal bountifully with me. So again, where does David conclude this psalm in the midst of the cave as he prays and pours out his complaint to God and expresses how he feels and tells the Lord, no one cares and no one can help, but Lord, you're my portion. You're the only thing I have. I'm clinging to you. And he says, Lord, please bring my soul out of this prison. Lord, I'm tired of being stuck in this prison. Get me out of this prison I feel stuck in. And he says, so that I can praise your name. And he says, Lord, I believe, he ends on a, a note of hopefulness, that you shall deal bountifully with me. David ultimately shifts his focus back to just the goodness of God, and he says, Lord, I believe that you will deal bountifully with me. doesn't describe what that means, but he says, I believe, Lord, you're going to do what's good in my life. And he just puts his focus there, and somehow that gave David a sense of peace to know, Lord, you will deal, notice, shall deal bountifully with me. And whether that is a blessing that comes in this life, or whether God dealing bountifully with us in saving the best for last and dealing bountifully with us by one day releasing us from this life and bringing us into his presence, that's true either way. It's true either way. And we keep trusting the Lord until he does that. Let's stand together.